Um, also, interestingly enough, is the word that the Lord, I really felt like the Lord was speaking over our church, is transformation. And, uh, and, and today you're going to hear a story of transformation, of God's goodness and, and the power of Christ in a person and actually two lives. His mother, is. this is her story as well. Um, obviously, this is a sensitive topic, and I just wanted to uh, make you parents aware um, there's a slideshow, and, and we, we will, Christopher, a part of his story, shares, uh, shows some, some of his pictures before he came to know Christ, and it just kind of gives you an idea of where he was at. And, and so just being a sensitive topic, we wanted parents to be uh, aware of that, so um, if you feel like you know, your, your kids can handle it, you, you know where they're at with that, so we'll just let you um, take care of that. But uh, so, without further ado, I want you to help me welcome Christopher Ioannis. He comes and shares with us this morning. Well, um, I had a great time. Uh, people have asked if I've been up this far north. I, I'm going to school at Bethel Seminary, so I, I know a little bit about Minnesota. Um, yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> But uh, I've never been out this far to Montevideo, uh, and through the wind and the, and the you know, uh, the wind and the wind. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, really a joy to be here to worship with you all. Um, the, I'm just going to share my story for the first part, so you guys have an idea of, of where I'm coming from, kind of that foundation of why do I have kind of um, even any experience talking on this subject. And then after that, I want to talk about a Christian response to homosexuality. I was raised in a home that was not a Christian home, but my parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values. And I don't see many, too many Asians here in Montevideo, so let me fill you in on um, Asian values. First of all, obey your parents. Do what they say, not what they do. Second, do well in school. I, I mean, I, I don't know, are there any Asians here in Montevideo? But okay, there, there's some. Um, Back in where, where I live in Chicago, we, we have more, more Asians, and you know, Asians, were, we have that kind of reputation of getting the A's. And, but third, this is very, very important, we must practice piano. I mean, Asians, you know, we either practice you know, piano or violin, one of those two. Well, I never fit in with the other American boys because I had this deep secret that I kept hidden through high school, college, and even the Marine Corps reserves. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, I no longer kept it a secret. Um, I started dental school at that, uh, at that time, and I came out of the closet as a gay man. So I went home, and I broke the news to my parents, and I told my mother, I am gay. Well, my mother, who wasn't a Christian, she thought that an ultimatum would bring me to my senses. And she said, you must either choose the family or choose homosexuality. Well, at that point, I already believed that this was a core part of who I was, and I didn't think that I could just turn it on and off like a light switch. And so I left home and I went back to Louisville. Well, this crushed my mother, and the timing could have been any worse. After years of unresolved issues, after years of living as non-Christians, my parents' marriage was a disaster, and they actually began the paperwork for divorce. So she was literally at the end of her rope and found no more reason to live, and the next day she had resolved to do the unthinkable, and she was going to end her life. But through that crisis, God saved her through a little pamphlet which shared with her the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners. And yet, in spite of our sin, the God of the universe still loves us. And God opened up the eyes of our heart to see that just as God can love her in spite of her brokenness, 
her sin, she could love me, she could love her gay son. You see, my mom had actually uh, thought about ending her life, and in reality, she did. One of her favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Within a few months, my father also surrendered his life to Christ, and Christ living in them prepared my parents for the difficult years ahead as I headed deeper and deeper into the gay community. I spent almost all my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it only left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied, and so I began experimenting with drugs. But without much money as a dental student, I supported my habit by selling drugs, and I sold to friends, classmates, and even a professor. You see, I thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So I moved to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia, and there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing but to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day, because according to the world, I had it all. I had money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie and began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no idea that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to me, and I wanted nothing to do with them. So my parents knew the only way that they would see me was if they actually flew down to Atlanta. But after the second day, I kicked them out, and I didn't even give them an opportunity to call their friends to, to pick them up. But before my father left, he wanted to give me something, and it was his very first Bible. It had all the notes in the margins, highlights. It was all dog-eared. And I told my dad, I don't want your Bible, because I didn't even want him to think that I might read it. But my dad, he is uh, pretty persistent, a little stubborn sometimes, but he's real persistent. And he put it on my kitchen counter and left. And as soon as my parents walked out, I took my father's Bible and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious to my parents that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer words from church, from the Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. And my mother began to pray a very bold prayer, which was, Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you whatever it takes. That's a bold prayer for a mother to make. But she was desperate. And in her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would literally spend hours every morning in her prayer closet interceding on my behalf. 
she often wrote out her prayers. And, and she would just pray for me and, and because she knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came one day with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I'd started with a bright future among society's finest, and I, among academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in Atlanta City Detention Center. And so I tried calling home, dreading that response as I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. You see, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not his wrath, it's not his anger, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through, through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because <laughs> I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. And she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do just as that good old hymn says, count your blessings, name them, one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what difficulty she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. And so she ripped off a little piece of adding machine tape and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before. <laughs> and he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list of blessings and taping more pieces of adding machine tape to it. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. Three days later, as I was walking around the cell block, I passed by this, this garbage can, and I thought, this garbage so represents my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was on my way to become a doctor. I had it made. And yet now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. And with my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and for the very first time, I opened up that good book and read through the entire Gospel of Mark that first night. But let me tell you something, I did not think that this was the answer to all my problems. I thought 
I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin and my rebellion. And it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She sat me down, shut the door behind me, and immediately I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, and she couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down at this piece of paper, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, certainly much better than 10 years to life. But news of my HIV status was like a death sentence. One night as I was laying in my bed, I noticed in the metal bunk above me something scribbled. And it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still had plans for me. I had no idea where this plan was going to take me, but he gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual, and God was convicting me in my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs, but within a few months, he completely delivered me from that. But the last thing that I was holding on to was my sexuality. As I was reading the Bible, I couldn't get around the fact that God loved me unconditionally. But I also came across those passages which seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. And so I went to a prison chaplain and I asked him his opinion on this issue. And to my surprise, this prison chaplain actually told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book from his bookshelf and he said, this book explains that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book was claiming, to justify 
the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God and His Word. And I couldn't even finish the book and I gave it back to the chaplain. So I turned to the Bible alone. I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification for homosexuality, looking for anything, looking for justification for monogamous homosexual consensual relationships. I didn't find anything. And so I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word to live as a gay man by allowing my sexuality to dictate who I was, or Abandon sexuality by liberating myself from my feelings and my sexuality and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I chose God. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality is not an inseparable aspect of who I am as a person. See, I always told myself that God loves me unconditionally and he doesn't want me to change. But unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. You see, my identity should never be defined by my feelings. My identity should never be defined by my sexuality. My identity is not gay or homosexual or even, get this, or even heterosexual for that matter. But my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. You see, God says, be holy for I am holy. I had always thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality. But I realized that the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. God never said, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual, but neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. He said, be holy, for I am holy. And God was telling me, don't focus upon your feelings or your sexuality or your passions or your desires, but focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. Because the ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with, not my temptations, not my sexuality, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender, this life of obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life, and he called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison. And I realized that it didn't matter where I was, whether in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And so with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. And so with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called home collect to my parents, and I told them of my interest to go to Bible college after prison. 
and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of in our hometown Chicago called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I, I was so excited. I ripped it open to the, to the questions, to the essays, till I got to the very end where they asked me for references from people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody Bible Institute. So the greatest miracle of this whole story is that Moody actually accepted me. <laughs> I was released from prison in July of 2001, started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to get my Master of Arts in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School. I'm working on my doctorate just down the road at Bethel Seminary, um, finished the book with my mother uh, last May, and God has such a sense of humor because I'm back at Moody teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. Only God can do that. But God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. So what is a good Christian response to homosexuality? And I thought I'd put this up there since, you know, we're in the techie years. If you have Facebook, find me on Facebook, um, like my fan page. Uh, but uh, how do we respond to this issue of homosexuality? And, you know, there's, there's many ways to approach this issue either sociologically, psychologically, developmentally, um, politically, and I'm just going to be really upfront with you. The foundation from which I'm going to build a Christian response to homosexuality is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that okay? Okay, so that's going to be my foundation. Unapologetically, that's going to be where I start, and that's going to be where I finish. But on the other hand, I also need to be honest that our reputation as Christians on this issue has not been very good. If anything, it's been very negative. There's a book called Unchristian. Anybody heard of that book, Unchristian, written by David Kinnaman, the, um, works with uh, Barnard Research Group and Gabe Lyons. He's the founder of Q Project. They wrote this book called Unchristians, and they studied how young Americans viewed the church. And what they found was staggering. They found that young Americans viewed the church to be confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of touch, too political, old-fashioned, hypocritical, judgmental, and guess what's at the very top? Anti-homosexual. Look at those numbers. 91% of those outside of the church, we might as well say everybody. And then how about those within the church? Do we fare any better? 80%, that's our youth and our young adults, believe that we are anti-homosexual. Look at the other numbers below that. I mean, they're just about not, you know, right around 50%, but 80% on this one issue, anti-homosexual. And let me note what it does not say. It does not say anti-homosexuality, right? Three letters at the very end which may not seem like a big difference. And I could maybe understand that, you know, that we understand God's calling is not a blessing 
homosexual relationships. But it doesn't say that. It says anti-homosexual. And what's the difference? It's against the person. And I would hope that we would realize that God is not against anybody, any person. We are not against any person. We want them to come to Christ and surrender all that they are to Christ. But God is for people, not against them. But remember, someone's perception is their reality. So I'm encouraging and challenging us that however we've been doing things, our modus operandi for the last few decades has not been working. So I want to encourage maybe a different approach on this issue, a Christian approach to this issue. And I believe I'm going to put things into four categories. First, we must be convicted. I mean, I think this is a great place to start. We need to recognize our own brokenness, our own sin. I mean, as you saw those numbers, I mean, we're seen as being hypocritical. Why are we seen hypocritical? Because we have our sin that we just kind of sweep under the rug, and yet homosexuality, heaven forbid, is just one of those really, really bad sins, as if it's one of the worst sins out there. As I lived as a gay gay man, I felt the church was telling me that homosexuality was one of the worst sins, that I deserved a hotter place in hell, that Jesus had to hang a little bit longer for people like me. And yet we know that's far from the truth. Homosexuality is not the worst sin. All sin will separate us eternally from God. I mean, there is one unpardonable sin that's grieving the Holy Spirit, not homosexuality. And yet we often kind of just elevate homosexuality to be this, you know, one of those sins that is just so aberrant or so disgusting. And and yet other sins we just overlook, gossip, jealousy, coveting, all these things, even adultery sometimes, you know. If that happens, let's just get that out of the church. But, but homosexuality happens, you know, then we really need to do something about it. And when I say church, I'm not saying community Bible. I'm saying the body of Christ, all of us. I mean, when one, thing, when one of us does something good, we all celebrate. When one of us does something not so good, we all kind of need to own that too. So homosexuality is not the worst sin. But some of you may, may get it and know, you know, I want to minister to people in the gay community or minister on this issue. But when I see, you know, my, my friend who's gay and, and I see him, I can't get it out of my mind that, you know, him being another man and it just kind of grosses me out. It disgusts me. And I want to tell you, actually, that's a good reminder. It's a reminder of what God must feel when he looks at our own sin. And maybe even more, and it's just a fraction of what God feels, that disgust that God feels when he looks at our own sin, because we have the Holy Spirit and we know better, and yet God still loves us. So our sin is just as odious in God's eyes as the sin of homosexuality. But I hope that as we approach this issue, first and foremost, with conviction, it will lead us to humility. Because our desire is to draw people to Jesus, amen? 
And yet, have you ever met anyone that came to Jesus through a holier-than-thou attitude? Have you? You know, oh, this old lady, I came to Jesus, you know, because this old lady prayed for me, and she was so pompous. <laughs> no, never. I mean, it's, you know, she was so gentle and humble and kind. I mean, that's what brings people to Christ, not pride. So let's approach this issue first and foremost with our own brokenness, with humility, conviction. Second, we must be consistent. As we read the Gospels, was not Jesus so patient and so loving to those sinners that everyone else would outcast? But who is he hardest on? The religious, the Pharisees, those hypocrites. And so we must always look at our own life, our own actions, our own thoughts, and see, are we being hypocritical? Are we being inconsistent? And I believe on this one issue of homosexuality, we have been a little bit inconsistent. In what ways? Three ways, and these are kind of general categories. First of all, we've been inconsistent when it comes to relationships. Because for people in the gay community, relationships is so important. Their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their partners, gay marriage, it's so important. And that's also part of our American culture. I mean, watch Hollywood, right? Movies, you know, the movie starts, a man is miserable because he's single, and then at the end of the movie, he's happy because, you know, he hooked up. That, that's part of our culture. And that's what we've been teaching our kids from a young age, right? How do all fairy tales end? They get married and... They live happily ever after, right? I'd love to get like the 10 year down the road or 20 year down the road, you know, see how true that is. You know, I mean, we want, I mean, we hope for that, but, but really not always. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I believe that we must hold up the beauty of marriage, but we have done that at the expense of singleness. And so now singleness has become this consolation prize. I'm so sorry you're stuck with singleness to the point that singleness is a curse. I'd hate for anyone to endure going through singleness, and yet that is unbiblical. That is not according to Scripture. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift, and yet we have difficulty saying that. We, we can say the first part, oh, amen, marriage is a gift. But now singleness, whew, that's a calling, <laughs> right? <laughs> you really need to be a special person to go through that. But you know, I'm, I'm single, I'm 41, and I've spoken to some of you married people. Marriage takes work, right? It takes giving of yourselves, loving unconditionally, loving sacrificially. And husbands, we are called to lay our lives down for our wives. Any husband done that lately? Anyone? You know, your wives can elbow your husband. <laughs> but, but the reality is, as impossible as that is, that's what we are called to do. Love each other unconditionally and sacrificially. So tongue in cheek, I say, marriage, now that's a calling. Singleness that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. <laughs> and so, you know, don't, I, I don't want to lower one below the other, but as we lift up the beauty and gift of one, we must lift up the beauty and gift of another because that greatly affects people working through issues of sexuality. People in the gay community, they, they say, I, they, like, they can't live without their partner or, or they can't see being single. That's so unfair. 
or even some within the church, the body of Christ. I mean, with a church this size, there's inevitable that someone here that goes to this church is working through issues of sexuality, either struggling with same-sex attractions, you know, struggling with gay feelings. Maybe they have a child who's gay or, or, or a brother who's gay. And so, you know, we, that, for, for many of Christians who are dealing with same-sex attractions, it's very difficult to think that they might not have a lifelong partner. And so as the body of Christ, we need to show that, you know what? It's okay to be single. It's okay to be single. Some people, you know, G- Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 that there will be no marriage in heaven. Did you know that? I don't want to ruin your Sundays, but we're going to be single in eternity. <laughs> but you know why? Because we will be wed to the Lamb of God. Amen? So really, marriage is a temporary state before singleness, not the other way around. Often people will ask, are you called to singleness? And you know, knowing my story, you guys know that I'm kind of done with planning my future. And I tell people, you know, I don't know about tomorrow, and and I believe we need to have a paradigm shift when it comes to singleness. Because we think a calling to singleness, we think a calling means something that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And and we're sometimes real afraid to kind of say, yes, that's what I'm called to, whether it's singleness or missions or anything. And yet, as I read through Scripture, I see how women and men of God have been called to something for one period in their life, and then for another period in their life, they were called to something else. So does that mean that first calling was wrong? No. That just meant that's what God called them to for that period in their life. So in the same way, I think a calling to singleness doesn't necessarily mean lifelong. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be easy. Doesn't necessarily mean that you don't want to get married. So I tell people now when they ask me, I don't know about tomorrow, but I know I'm called a singleness today. And that frees me up to live fully in the calling that God has placed me in, not as a punishment, but because he is sovereign and he knows what's best for me. And so we all need to embrace marriage and embrace singleness. We need to be consistent regarding relationships, but also consistent regarding sexuality. For many Christians, we think God is calling us all to heterosexuality. He created us to be heterosexual. But I really wonder about that term. I mean, this term is a man-made, modern, sociological, psychological term. And as I look at that term as what it means, being attracted to the opposite sex or having sex with the opposite sex, I see where the Bible actually condemns a lot of heterosexual sin. Adultery, fornication, lust, all those things are under the wide umbrella of heterosexuality. So I don't think that heterosexuality is a good category for us to use as what God is calling us to or what God is saying is normal. And so if heterosexuality is too broad of a term, and if it's obviously not homosexuality, then what is it that God is calling us to? God is calling us to holy sexuality. And what is holy sexuality? Reading through Scripture, I only see two, submit, two scenarios for the outworkings of our, of our sexuality. First, if you're married, complete faithfulness to your spouse of the opposite sex. Or if you're single, complete faithfulness through abstinence, celibacy. That's it. No other two options. 
And what do we call that? Not homosexuality, not heterosexuality. So I coined a term, holy sexuality. And what I love about this is that this applies to all of us, male, female, whether you have heterosexual feelings or homosexual feelings. We all need to pursue a life of holiness. I have a friend that I think helps illustrate this. Um, he, he, was, he lived as a gay man for many years, had no interest in girls growing up, and, and just thought, I'm just going to be single for the rest of his life, and he was okay with that. He was in ministry. Uh, there was a young lady that he was in ministry with. Um, she came up from a broken past, um, was very promiscuous growing up, had several abortions, and she was like, I'm just done dating guys. She just wanted to focus on a relationship with God. So uh, they were able to get really close and kind of they were like buddies because there was never any of that weirdness that goes on between a guy and a girl. Does he like me? Does she like me? And, uh, you know, they, uh, they just were able to be really, really close. Well, after some time, he started noticing things about her. She smelt good. Her hair. And she had curves. <laughs> and he says puberty is hard going through once, Try going through puberty twice. <laughs> well, he got up enough courage and asked her out on a date. And they dated for some time. And then he asked her to marry him. And on their wedding night, he looked at her in the eyes and told her, I can't explain this, honey. I'm not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. That is holy sexuality. I believe if God will bring two people together into the miracle of one flesh union, he can provide all that those two people need to fulfill that covenant relationship, holy sexuality. So we must be consistent regarding uh, relationships, consistent regarding sexuality, and consistent regarding change. Because when we think about homosexuality and change, I don't even like that, that word change because so many connotations, but we think change means going from gay to straight or no longer having those feelings. But do we apply those same principles to anything else? Let's say I have a friend who drank a lot, comes to Christ, no longer drinks. I mean, he was a drunk before, no, you know, long, no longer drinks. Several years, I talked to him at the, you know, several years later, and he says, I still have the urge to pick up a beer. Would I then say, you haven't been changed. We need to lay some hands on you. You need some deliverance. No, I actually think the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he has to say no to his flesh and say yes to God. That's why I said in my testimony, change is not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. God never promised that we won't struggle with our flesh. God never promised that we won't struggle with our feelings or temptations. You know, God's faithfulness is not proven by taking us out of our struggle. God's faithfulness is proven by carrying us through them. That's God. That's God. So we must be convicted, we must be consistent, and we also must be compassionate. I teach at Moody Bible Institute, and um, often I have students that come to me, and they share with me that they think they're gay, that they have homosexual feelings, that they struggle with same-sex attractions. I mean, you know, 
Ter- Sometimes they don't even know what terms to use because they've never shared with anybody. And that breaks my heart. I mean, for some reason, they felt like they couldn't share with their parents or share with their brother or sister or their, or their best friends or their youth pastor or their pastor. And they talk about how they hate themselves. They're depressed. They're disgusted that they were ever born. They have thoughts of suicide. And you know, that should move us. That should change us. That we should desire to be a safe place where we can be open with our struggles, open with our issues. You know, the gay community is always talking about coming out of the closet. And I say, you know, that's good. We should all come out of our, come out of our closet and surrender to Christ. Come out of our closet of pride. Come out of our closet of, of a porn addiction. Come out of our closet of an eating disorder. Come, come out of the closet of cutting. Come, whatever it is, come out of the closet and surrender to Jesus. That's what we're called to do. So we must be a safe place. So how can we be a safe place? First of all, we must simply just expect that this is present here. Expect that this is present within the body of Christ and not let it surprise us that one of us might be dealing with issues of sexuality. Why should it surprise us that we deal with our flesh? Why should it surprise us, surprise us that we are broken? I mean, or are we, you know, is the church the body of Christ? Are we to be a big social club where we all have it together and, and you know, we just kind of meet on Sundays because we're all, we all got it together? Or are we just broken, needy people who need Jesus? I mean, I'm going to be totally honest, I need Jesus. Anyone else out there that need Jesus? I desperately need Jesus every day. And so let, as the body of Christ, hand in hand, walk to him. So just expect that this is present within the church, but not be paranoid. When I came out to my mom, you know, before all of us came to Christ, she just was like thinking everyone was gay. Oh my goodness, you know, they're sitting really close together. I never knew that they were gay, you know. <laughs> He's wearing pink, you know, who knew? Who knew? And, you know, so don't be going, you know, paranoid, your gaydar going crazy, but just, you know, assume and not be surprised that we have people here that are working through issues of sexuality. And be careful not to stereotype. You know, we think gay men, you know, they're, they're always... Um, you know, uh, d- uh, uh, you know, designers or uh, musicians or, you know, work in a beauty salon and stuff like that. That's not always true. You know, and, and like, you know, lesbians, you know, they're riding motorcycles and, and you know, leather and stuff like that. That is not always true. I mean, many of my friends when I lived in the gay community are, are men that you would never guess that they were gay. Never. You know, and, and they were very fit, and, and I always get a kick out of uh, when guys, you know, these jocks, they're reading these men health magazines. I'm like, all those models, they're gay. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, uh, that might be news for some of you, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, the, so uh, the reality is these stereotypes don't always kind of fit in, and, and just be careful not to apply those stereotypes, because sometimes you can have a guy who's very artistic and, and gifted in that way musically, and he doesn't even have any issue with this, with, with this matter. So just be careful not to stereotype because it can, it can be hurtful. So expect that this is present here. But second, know what is our position. What is the church's position and, in, and what is your position? I mean, and speaking with Bruce and Athena, I know what that they're, where they're at. 
And what we're saying is, is not, it's a sin, don't do it. Because that doesn't minister to people. Our desire is to minister to people who've been impacted by this issue, who, who've embraced, who are in the gay community, who are here maybe in, right within our pews that might be working through issues of sexuality. That's our heart is to draw people to Christ. We want to minister Jesus to them. Um, some of you may think, you know, I have this Christian friend and, 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 I've, and I wonder if they might be working through this issue and I want to let them know that I'm here for them. How do I bring it up? Don't. I mean, imagine if someone came up to you and be like, so do you struggle with homosexuality? I mean, that would be really awkward, okay? <laughs> so just don't do that. But what you can do is tell them this. I thank God for you. I thank God that he put you into my life as a brother in the Lord, as a sister in the Lord, and I just want you to know that nothing will ever change that. Nothing. And by saying that, that creates a safe place and invites them in. So emphasize your commitment to them. That's a great place to start, to be compassionate. And then this might apply to some of our youth or young adults, zero tolerance on joking. Zero tolerance. You know, 20 years ago, I think, you know, we, we've come a long way when it comes to colored jokes, and we don't really do that much anymore. But when it comes to the jokes on, on homosexuality, jokes toward people who are gay or seem gay or whatever, we need to stop. Because when we do that, we never know when someone might be in earshot of that joke. And what that does is just pushes them deeper into the darkness of their secret. And it, just, and it just makes their depression or thoughts of suicide even greater. Do we want to do that or do we want a compassionate place? So no more gay jokes. Bullying, all that, that needs to stop. You know, I mean, we, I feel like sometimes the church, all we say, you know, is, is when the gay community, you know, they're doing these campaigns, anti-bullying, and, and the, it gets better. The church, we're like fighting against that. I'm like, can't we just agree that when one person takes their life, that grieves us? And that's wrong? Can't we just say that bullying is wrong? Period. And so, you know, I tell people instead of the, that, you know, that's so gay jokes, let's be more creative, you know, that's so Baptist, that's so Presbyterian, you know, that's, that's so Lutheran, whatever, you know, I mean, just anything, just let's be more creative, but no more jokes, okay, can we do that? And as parents, we need to be proactive with our youth. You might think that they're not doing it, but you never know. Be proactive, that's not going to happen in this house. So... Great, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to finish. Yes, thank you. Hold your question. If you could write it down, I'm going to have some questions at the end. Thank you. I, I just have probably another 10 minutes. Um, and then, so I just want to, uh, this last part, we'll be talking about how we can be, um, I want to give you some kind of practical things on, on how we can be, uh, you know, apply this and respond. Because I told you about we need to be convicted, we need to be consistent, we need to be uh, compassionate, and last, we need to be complete. Why do we need to be complete? I mean, we're people of truth, right? The truth sets us free, so we must focus upon the truth. But what is the truth? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? If I were to do a survey and ask, you know, Christians, what does the Bible say about homosexuality, evangelical Christians? The majority of people will say, oh, well, that's easy. The Bible says it's a sin. Okay, that's true, but you know what we do? 
we put a period at the end of that sentence and say nothing more. And that is equivalent to giving someone the one spiritual law tract. Have you ever seen that, the one spiritual law tract? It goes like this. You're a sinner, you're going to hell, I'm sorry. I mean, in case you didn't know, that is not good news, okay? That's bad news. And yet, that's the message we are giving to the gay community. You're a sinner, you're going to hell, there's no hope for you. No wonder why people in the gay community have no interest in coming to the church. Because all we're doing is giving them this incomplete message. We're giving the gay community a message that is not the complete truth. And let me remind you, giving someone an incomplete truth is just as bad as telling them a lie. And so we must give them the complete truth. So what is the complete truth? Well, there's a passage that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, and it gives this whole list of sins. It says, or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? And gives this whole list of sins, which among them are homosexuality. And sometimes we just kind of zero in on homosexuality and say, look, those gay people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Forget about everything else. You know, that really, if we read them carefully, will convict all of us. <laughs> but then here's the good news in verse 11. Such were some of you. Let me say that again. Such were some of you. Past tense, I love that word, were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our God and the spirit of our Lord. That is good news. That's news that we can declare from the rooftops to the gay community, to the straight community, to any community. We must be redemptive in our message and complete in the truth that we give to people. That there is hope in Jesus that you can be washed, you can be justified, you can be redeemed in the name of our Lord. That is good news. So let's focus upon that because people in the gay community, people within the church that might be struggling with same-sex attractions, their main issue is not homosexuality. Their main issue is to know Jesus and completely surrender to him. Isn't that all of our issues? (laughs) Don't we all deal with that every single day? (laughs) And so let's remind each other of that and remind the gay community and others about that as well. So here are some practical things. If we want to use the gospel to impact on this issue of homosexuality, I think we need need to look at it in two ways because one way is outreach to the gay community, evangelism. Another one is within discipleship, mentoring, right? Evangelism and mentoring are not the same thing, right? So let's first look at how do, we, how do we work with our own people, Christians, who might be working through issues of sexuality. Let's just say after this weekend, after we're talking about sexuality, you might have a friend that calls you up and say, you know, I, I want to share something with you. And they share with you that they're working through, that they have same-sex attractions, they think they're gay. Do you know what to do? Well, here's some things that I suggest. First, thank them. Thank them that they shared with you this deep, dark secret. They probably rehearsed for months what they were going to say to you. And yet, finally, they opened up and trusted you with something that's so intimate to them. 
thank them. Second, second, um, tell them that they're not alone. Many Christians living with same-sex attractions, they think that they're all alone, that no one within the church will ever understand them. And you know, you can say, even though I may not understand all the details, the intricacies about homosexuality, I'm willing to take your hand and walk with you to Jesus. That can be the difference between life and death. Third, identity in Christ. You know, for many of us, as we're going through teen years, 20s, 30s, sexuality can be so overwhelming. Like that's all we think about, whether it's sexual intimacy or whether it's even relational intimacy. And it can be so overwhelming, but you know what? Our identity is not found in our passions, our desires, or our feelings. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. And so we need to tell each other that all the time, regardless of what you feel, regardless of what you think. Our identity is grounded in Christ, in Christ alone. Fourth, be realistic. Don't just promise that, oh, if you just pray hard enough, you can just pray away the gay. You know, you'll just be all okay in no time. You'll get married and have babies. You know, just be, you know, just be so easy. No, that's not how it goes. It's going to take time. It's going to take heartache. It's going to take, you know, working together. It's going to take the body of Christ being the body of Christ. And so don't give false promises. Don't give false promises. Um, and yes, you know, they may be dealing with loneliness, but don't we all deal with loneliness? I mean, I know married people that feel so lonely. So marriage is not always the answer. Marriage, actually, marriage isn't the answer, period. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Because, you know, I tell people, it's one, another person should never meet all of our needs. That's Christ's job. So don't make another person your Christ figure. Don't make another person your Christ figure. Uh, fifth, don't focus so much upon the externals. You know, it used to be thought, how do we kind of fix a lesbian? Well, have her grow her hair out, hair out long, get a nice makeover, wear, you know, get her in a dress and pumps, and poof, you know, she's fixed, you know, you know. And guys, you know, teach them how to throw a football, you know, throw a baseball, get them dirty, you know. No, that's not how it works. That's focusing on the externals. And God doesn't look at that. He looks at the heart. And wouldn't it be amazing if the change was from the inside out? So don't focus a bunch on the externals. Um, Fifth, encourage God-honoring same-sex intimacy. This was so important for me, so key for me, that, that relationships with other guys. You know, all of us were created to desire same-sex intimacy. All of us were. I believe homosexuality is a legitimate need fulfilled in an illegitimate way. We all work desire to create, to desire, uh, we were all created to desire same-sex intimacy. You know, and I think that comes easier for women. I mean, that's God-honoring um, and non-sexual. And, and women, that comes easy for you, right? You have your girlfriend, you guys can be really close, and, and you guys talk and, and talk and, and, and talk, you know? <laughs> and yet guys, you know, we're like, five minutes is like eternity, <laughs> right? And, and yet I think, guys, maybe why, guys, we fall into sin is because we don't have that Jonathan or David to sharpen us that we have that intimate relationship that, that's stretching us and, and conforming us into the image of Christ. 
Uh, so, so encourage God-honoring, um, intimate, healthy, non-sexual relationships that, are, um, that point people to God. Okay, so that's working with people within the church. Okay, and I'm going to end with this, reaching out to the gay community. LGBT, this is an acronym that some of you might not have heard before. It's not a sandwich, okay? <laughs> LGBT stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And those are people in the gay community. So how would we reach out to them? I want to first tell you some things that we should not do, okay? Do not compare homosexuality with an addiction. So a lot of times people hear my testimony and they say, oh, you're saying that all gay people do drugs and all people are promiscuous. No, that's just part of my story. Not all gay people do drugs. Not all gay people do, you know, are very, very promiscuous. There, there are some that are very responsible and, and very great citizens. I mean, you know, if anything, we should pray that we have gay neighbors. They're great neighbors. They're friendly. They know how to decorate. They're clean. You know, I mean, their lawns are manicured. I mean, they're wonderful people. And besides, shouldn't we desire to impact the world for Christ? Shouldn't we desire to have neighbors who don't know Christ? So, you know, we be, you know don't compare homosexuality with an addiction. Don't... Sometimes people think that all gay, you know, gay people are pedophiles. No, that's not true. Not true. Um, <laughs> I also have a gay friend that say, why do Christians always compare me to a murderer? <laughs> that's not a good way to win someone to Christ, <laughs> in case you didn't know. So, you know, yes, we know all sins are equal, but they, a lot of people, they can't comprehend that. Also, don't use these two words, lifestyle and choice. Don't use those words, lifestyle and choice. That, for some reason, that like fits into our vocabulary well. You know, we say the gay lifestyle. You know, they chose to be gay. No, take that out. There's some truth to that. I mean, if we define gay simply as having homosexual feelings or those temptations, I've yet to meet anyone who chose to have those temptations. I mean, did anyone choose to be tempted by sin? Anyone? I mean, did any of us choose to have a sinful nature? None of us chose to have that. So just be careful. But, but remember, people in the gay community, they cannot separate who they are from what they feel and what they do. They can't separate that. We can. We're creating the image of God, but we have a sinful nature, right? We can separate those two. Um, so be careful. Don't use those two words. Also, don't use this phrase, love the sin or hate the sin. <laughs> yes, that's how we reach out to those who don't know about Christ, but don't tell them that. Because the one word that they'll hear most likely is hate. Fourth, don't feel the need that you have to debate with people that, you know, oh, I'm standing on the truth and I'm going to tell you that how right I am and how wrong you are. I mean, have you met anyone that was debated into the kingdom? No, never. So don't feel, here's an example of what I'm talking about. How many of you guys have ever been asked by someone outside the church, do you think homosexuality is a sin? How many of you guys have been asked that before? Okay, and often they'll ask like that with the finger pointing, you know, in your face. And right away, you just know this is not going to be pretty, right? And I'm just telling you, when that happens, you don't have to answer that question. Because you know right away, they're not really asking you about information. They just want to know, are you on my side or are you on that side? And what you can tell them is, I value our relationship more than debating. Can we just focus upon our similarities and tolerate our differences? They may then say, well, you haven't answered my question. And I would tell them, the Bible says all of us are sinners. And make it personal and say, I'm a sinner. And yet Jesus came to die for our sins. And if you believe in him, you can have your sins forgiven and live with him eternity. You just had the opportunity to share the gospel, amen? 
You turn that really difficult situation and use it to share the gospel. But I do want to say, even though you don't ever want to argue and debate, if someone does ask you sincerely and, and they really ask you, does, do you think homosexuality is a sin and they're not doing it like this? We have the right to tell them what God says. Okay, so these are do nots. Here's, here are things that we are going to do and then we're going to go into our questions. First, pray. My mother prayed for years, seven years, fasted every Monday for seven years, once 39 days. Can you imagine if we actually mobilized the church to pray for the gay community, we might have a revival breakout in the gay community. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be amazing? So we need to pray, pray, because really, I mean, I tell people change is not possible, but God does the impossible. Amen? Does he not? So pray. Second, listen. Listen. Don't be quick to speak, but just listen to their stories, and you'll realize pe these people are just like us. Be intentional. Don't be afraid to invite them over to coffee or lunch. Yes, people will accuse you. What are you doing eating with that sinner? But didn't the Pharisees accuse Jesus of eating with sinners? But how would those sinners have known about Jesus if Jesus didn't spend time with them? So be intentional. Fourth, be patient and persistent. Know that, it's, you know, that this is going to take time. This is, you know, don't treat this like your pet project. But it's going to take time. I mean, for me, seven years is a short time. I know people who have been waiting for decades. Last, be transparent. How can you share the gospel? You know, that can be hard to, you know, to get out the track and begin sharing the gospel. But you know what you can do? Share what the gospel has done in your own life. Because we should not be the same as we were 10 years ago, 10 months ago, or 10 weeks ago. And share about that. I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out in my parents' lives. I would never have picked up that Bible if I didn't see the Bible lived out by my mother and my father. I did not leave homosexuality because it was so bad or so wicked or so, so dark. I left homosexuality because I found something better, and that's Jesus. Our job as Christians is to show a dying world that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything that you could ever have, better than a relationship, better than a boyfriend, a girlfriend, better than a partner, better than the gay community, better than a, a job, a career, money, a car. Jesus is better than all of that. Jesus is actually the best. We need to show a world that in spite of all the things that you are pursuing, Jesus is better than all of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of life. We praise you that in the midst of our lives, Lord, you are sovereign. And yet often, Lord, we get caught up in our pursuit of other things in the world. And they could be good things. It could be, could be a family member or it could be a job or a career. But, Father, if we have placed anything above you, that is idolatry. If there's anything in our lives that we are unwilling to let go of, whether it be a relationship, whether it be a job, whether it be our career, Lord, that is idolatry. Help us, oh God, to see those things and to place you above all other else. 
Help us, Father, as well to make Jesus beautiful to the world, to the world around us that have been confused on this issue, to the world around us that see that Jesus is irrelevant. But, Father, help us to make Jesus and show the world that he is better, that he is the best. We praise you and ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I guess um, we could, I have some time for questions. Um, should I go through some of these first, or should I just kind of field some, what do you think? Field some? Yes. Uh, you had a question in the middle there? Yes. Sure. Great. Well, we all have. So, I mean, <laughs> we all are hypocrites, you know. I mean, I think it's good to admit that we have, you know, we all are so. 